the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Interesting research that's out that I suspect if you look at the world around us here in the United States and read the headlines with any frequency, you'd probably see that, uh, yeah, this, this sort of rings true at least um, spiritually speaking. Um, We take an examination of what's going on within the evangelical church today, and um, George Barna, of course, who's done a wonderful job down through the years documenting trends within uh, the Christian world in general and and evangelicalism in specific down through the years. Um, More recently, uh, one of his surveys coming out that demonstrates, and this ought to set all of us back on our heels that identify as evangelicals, that Less than five of us um, in a typical church are personally involved with evangelism. And the typical church, by the way, that identifies as evangelical in nature, <laughs> less than 2% of their budget is dedicated to, you guessed it, evangelism. So when you take the evangel out of evangelical or evangelism, what are you left with? And what about the mandate? to the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's time for some re-examination as to whether or not we are engaged in the kind of reach that we ought to be. My uh, guest here in this segment of the program uh, probably grows weary of being introduced as the gentleman who's the president of the organization that runs the Christian radio station in Quito, Ecuador. But the irony, of course, is that um, given the 80-plus year incredible outreach that this ministry has had uh, through radio and other means, uh, that's probably not a bad thing to be referenced to. He is Wayne Pedersen. He is president of Reach Beyond, formerly HCJB, and he's got a new book of the same title, Reach Beyond, Comfort, Courage, and the Cause of Christ. And Wayne, great to have you on the program. Well, thanks, Greg. It's a privilege to be on with you and on uh, this afternoon and uh, share a little bit about what God is doing in extraordinary ways around the world with the whole global shift from uh, the, the real evangelism and missions that has shifted to the global south. And the greatest growth of the church today is not in Europe and North America, but in places like South America, Asia, and Africa. And it's amazing, too, and maybe a big wake-up call for those of us here in, in the Christian West, whether we're talking about Europe or, or North America, that we kind of think that uh, we're sort of the standard bearer, the, the paradigm setter for um, what evangelicalism or evangelism rather ought to look like. And, 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 and certainly while you know we've played a significant role down through the years, God has been doing some exciting things in some exciting ways that are maybe perhaps by uh, well, by Western standards, a little bit out of the norm, and yet very much within his norm. Well, it was 100 years ago that 90% of uh, followers of Jesus lived in North America or Europe, and those numbers have almost reversed in the last 100 years, where now about 70% of believers live outside of the North America and Europe, 
there in Africa, where the church is growing uh, fantastically, in Asia, in Latin America. And now many of those countries are sending missionaries back to North America to some of the immigrants that have come into our country from these other countries. And uh, the top mission-sending country in the world is Brazil. The second most uh, mission-sending country is Korea. So we're seeing kind of the reverse flow of missionary activity coming back to this country. And as our country becomes more and more secular and materialistic, we're seeing uh, God working in, in previously unreached places of the world. Let's talk about how that paradigm shift has taken place, and, and most notably, perhaps, what we as the church in America um, and and the West can learn from it. Uh, I mean, there's always kind of been a, a pattern to the way we have engaged in outreach and evangelism. I think, for example, of, of some of the history of HCJB and kind of taking the, the approach of going into all the world and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the case of this, using radio as a means to most effectively across those borders and accomplish all of that. And yet today, even as much as we've seen a changing face of what evangelical Christianity looks like around the globe, even the ministry of, um, well, now reached beyond, formerly HCJB, that's even changed a bit too, hasn't it? Well, our strategy is much different where uh, we used to be very Ecuador-centric, Quito-centric, and we brought missionaries in from all over the world to go to Quito and then use shortwave broadcasting to send the message to places like uh, Europe, Russia, Africa, Asia. Today, the strategy is much more working with local partners, training indigenous people that know the language and know the culture. Most everything we do at Reach Beyond today is through a local partner. And because they're already there and they can live on $100 a month, which is the average salary, and because they already know the language and the culture, they don't have to go to language school. They don't have to take 10 years to learn the culture. And with the right equipment and the right training, uh, they can reach their peers with the gospel of Christ. Even as we speak, we have a team over in the most populous Muslim country in the world, in Indonesia, and they're training about 28 young media professionals on how to own and run and manage a radio station. And when we leave, those 28 new, newly trained leaders will be uh, reaching their countrymen. And they're seeing, those stations are seeing an average of three to five people a day come to Christ at each of their stations. And churches are being planted throughout Indonesia and Former Muslims are leading other Muslims to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, imams are uh, becoming followers of Jesus and teaching about Jesus in the mosque. And it's an amazing thing that is happening as Christianity is spreading rapidly into these former countries that were strongholds for other false religions. Well, and as you indicate, Wayne, I mean, while the message is the same, it is timeless of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his um, substitutionary work on the cross on behalf of my, mankind that we might be reconciled unto the Father. Um, that that has never changed. But the methodology uh, is changing. And I, and I would wonder what the likes of a Hudson Taylor, uh, who was so uh, responsible in the 1800s for bringing the gospel to China, 
uh, would think of the indigenous church in China today that is largely all run by nationals. I mean, we know that there are certainly no uh, no missionary schools there. There are no seminaries there. There are, uh, at least of, of the ones that are above ground, the legal ones, the three self-church movement is all controlled by the government. And yet here you are with a nation that is largely devoid of much of the way that we do, quote unquote, church in the West. It's one of the fastest growing churches on planet Earth, and it's all being done at the hands of nationals. Isn't it interesting, Craig, how, uh, I mean, it's always been true, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And some of the fastest growing spread of Christianity in the world are in, are in countries where there is persecution. And uh, one outstanding example is Iran, where uh, 25 years ago they could identify only about 400 believers. And today, and largely through social media, using uh, Skype and texting and Facebook and other means, plus uh, broadcasting the gospel from outside, of a country with medium wave, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians, and Iran is the fastest growing uh, Christian country in the world, percentage-wise. And some of the stand countries where there's heavy persecution, the church is uh, multiplying in fantastic ways. So persecution doesn't seem to stop the growth of the church. In fact, it's just the opposite. Where there is opposition in places, uh, we're working in a place like Nepal, which uh, six years ago was a Hindu-controlled government, and the Maoists came in and overthrew that government, established a democratic republic, and now we're able to go in and start radio stations and health clinics in a country that was formerly completely closed to the gospel. So these are amazing days we're living in today, and God has given us these amazing media tools uh, not only radio, but satellite and Internet and social media with which we can share Christ in some of the most uh, formally closed places of the world. And, of course, this all gives an underlying lesson, perhaps, uh, a wake-up call of sorts to the church in the West um, for ourselves and the enormous amount of missions work that we have to do, uh, not necessarily overseas, well, that's certainly um, on the, the to-do list, um, more and more so right here at home. I'll never forget years ago uh, running into a group of uh, Christians that uh, were in China, and uh, in the course of conversation, asked them what uh, they felt the Lord had called them to do, and uh, without exception, uh, each and every one of these um, young college-age individuals indicated that they felt God had called them to be missionaries to the United States. Uh, what an amazing turn of events where in the 1800s here, uh, um, uh, the likes of Hudson Taylor were traveling to China bring the gospel message, and now um, the very fruit of his labor, a hundred and something years later, now feels burdened to turn around and come to the United States to bring the gospel message here. One of the things that uh, we strive to do at Reach Beyond, and that's kind of the the whole underlying theory of the book, Reach Beyond, Comfort, Courage, and the Cause of Christ, is to call the Church of Jesus Christ in North America to a stronger commitment to reach the unreached. Uh, I was involved, uh, as you may know, uh, Craig, in Christian radio for many, many years in this uh, country until uh, God called me to this work six years ago, and the verse God used was Romans fifteen twenty, where Paul said, It has always been my ambition 
to preach the gospel where the name of Christ is not known. So in our book, we have what we're calling our mission manifesto, and it's a call to action to ourselves and to the Church in this country. Uh, For example, we state, we refuse to stand idly by as people enter eternity without Christ, when we can share the good news that transforms them through the media they use. We refuse to watch people for whom Christ died suffer in pain and poverty, when we can help restore them in his name. And we say we refuse to fear the darkness that entraps people when common sense is protect yourself and stay in your comfort zone. We put on the armor of God and storm the gates of hell for the sake of the unreached, if that's what's required. Our conversation today with Wayne Peterson, we're talking about um, the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mandate here in the 21st century to go into all the world, and um, how in many respects, while the message clearly remains the same, the methodology is changing. What are some of the lessons that we can learn here at home in America? A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Uh, Wayne Peterson is with us today. He is president of Reach Beyond. You know the ministry uh, commonly as uh, HCJB, located in Quito, Ecuador. Of course, this ministry has been global and impacting the world for Christ for the better part of 80-plus-something oh, years now. Wayne has written a new book called Reach Beyond, Comfort, Courage, and the Cause of Christ. And as we were articulating prior to the break, while clearly the message of the gospel, the hope of Christ, remains the same, the methodology of how that message is communicated and delivered has changed uh, quite significantly. And and the interesting thing is we've seen this paradigm shift, uh, Wayne, in the mission field, where now really it's largely the, the tremendous success of nationals. Uh, that are leading to this almost um, uh, wildfire of of uh, growth of the church in, in many parts of the world. There might be some important lessons that we here in the West can draw from what we're seeing happening in, in places like Central and South America, Asia, China, elsewhere. Well, absolutely, and uh, we are learning from our friends in places like Asia, Africa, and South America in some ways they put us to shame with their boldness uh, in parts of North Africa where we work and help deliver programs uh, through uh, satellite. Uh, we have local partners on the ground that work below the radar, and we don't identify them in any way. Often we disguise their voices. But if I were there, I would be praying like mad for protection. You know what they pray for, Craig? They pray for boldness, mm. not safety. And we're so safety conscious in this country, but in that part of the world, they they just pray, Lord, make us bold in our witness. And they don't take any unnecessary chances, but uh, last year we had one of our radio uh, producers that uh, was turned into the authorities. They arrested him, put him in jail. Uh, In jail, somebody recognized his voice from the radio broadcast and beat him because he was a follower of Jesus. And through a series of miracles, he was released in a couple of months and returned to his family. Uh, the stories don't always end that way. We know that there are people that are arrested, beaten, and sometimes killed because they follow Jesus. Uh, one of our uh, radio partners in that part of the world was listening to one of our broadcasts uh, on satellite, and his father discovered that he was uh, listening and on the website 
and said, son, do you really believe this stuff? And he says, yes, father, I do. He didn't deny it. He just said, yes, I believe it. And he beat his son, threw him out of the house uh, with only what he had on his back. And that young man, uh, going through the streets half naked at night, uh, no home, no family. There was a light on in a house, and in a country that's less than 1% Christian, knocked at the door, and a Christian family took him in and uh, healed his wounds and fed him and clothed him and got him into school. Today, this young man is producing programs for us in the Arabic language and reaching his countrymen. I mentioned earlier, uh, we often digitally disguise the voices of those so they won't be recognized. We offered to disguise his voice, and he says, No, I've already been beaten for following Jesus. You can let my voice go out as it is. So th- this is why I think we can learn something. You know, we have social persecution in this country, and we feel we're discriminated against, and that's true. However, in many parts of the world, uh, becoming a follower of Jesus can cost you your family, your job, or even your life. Yeah, ironically, it is more of a picture of what the first century church looked like um, than certainly anything that we've known of recent years. And, and, and maybe perhaps that sense of, of purpose that is motivated by uh, results, motivated by a passion for Christ and a desire to serve Him above, above all else, um, is exactly what the Lord wants of us in, in these uh, these times when uh, there's a better part of, what, almost two and a half billion people that have yet to hear the gospel message. And we know that while certainly a lot of them lie in that, that all-critical 1040 window, uh, growing numbers of them are right here at home, right here as our next-door neighbors in North America, aren't they? Well, and that's the other thing we can learn uh, in this country because the mission field is now coming to us. And many of the immigrants that are coming to this country, I don't know how you feel about the immigration issue, but many are coming, and they are interested in our culture. Many are coming from Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and finding Christ in this country because they're interested in the culture. Many that are coming are already believers and are starting churches, and they have come to this country to escape persecution or to have a better life and starting churches and reaching other immigrants with the gospel. So uh, I don't think uh, the the story is over for the United States of America. I think we're going to see a spiritual harvest come here as uh, the rest of the world reaches out to our very materialistic, hedonistic, secular society in this country. Yeah, as you point out, the mission field is literally coming to us, and the amazing thing is that then God can use this as these people influence their friends um, and family members back home, wherever their nation of origin might be, and we see the continuing cycle of the outreach of the gospel. Uh, great book, and if you'd like to get more information about it, um, you can do so by going to reachbeyond.org. That's reachbeyond.org. Take a moment, if you would, Wayne, as our time winds down together, and tell us a bit about the I Refuse campaign. Well, the, uh, I referred to that a bit earlier. The I Refuse is our mission manifesto. And if you go to our website, you'll be able to read that manifesto. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight points. And we're looking for 100,000 followers of Jesus that will go online and sign that manifesto. 
And the I Refuse campaign is we refuse to stand idly by as people enter eternity without Christ when we can share the good news that transform them. We refuse to watch people for whom Christ dies suffer in pain and poverty when we can help restore them in his name. We refuse to fear the darkness that entraps people. We'll put on the armor of God and pray for the unreached uh, so that more may come to know Jesus. And if you want to know more about the I Refuse, this is a call to the church in America to take a stand to share the good news with the dark places around the world. And we invite many of your listeners to your show, Craig, that they would go online and sign this manifesto and make that commitment to reach the unreached around the world and even across the street. And again, information available on the web at reachbeyond.org. That's reachbeyond.org. Wayne's new book, by the way, of a similar title. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through Amazon.com and, of course, through reachbeyond.org. Wayne Pedersen, president of Reach Beyond, formerly HCJB. Thank you for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Hi there, Jordan Michaels here. Have you ever noticed in buying new towels that they can look beautiful, be soft and fluffy, but they're hardly absorbent? And isn't that the whole purpose of a towel? You know, I think we'd all agree we want a towel that looks good and feels great and works. Well, my pillow inventor, Mike Lindell, found the best towel company right here in America that gives everything you want in a good towel. It's made with good old US of A cotton. Right now, you can get such a great deal on these my pillow towels. I have a set of my own, so I know firsthand how great they are. Six-piece set includes two bath, two hand towels, two washcloths for what was normally $109.99. And now get this. When you get out of the shower and dry off, boy, this is a towel you're going to want to reach for. Go to MyPillow.com, click the new radio listener specials, enter the promo code KFAX or call 800-479-1790. MyPillow.com, use that promo code KFAX. This is the water. This is the water. This is the water.com. Imagine never having to buy bottled water or household cleaning agents ever again. At thisisthewater.com, they eliminate the expense of those toxic household cleaners and help safeguard our environment. Working with thisisthewater.com, you don't add to the earth's plastic pollution or toxic chemical waste, but you will provide your family with superior neutral pH water for baby formulas and medications or alkaline drinking water for your health. You can produce an abundance of strong alkaline and strong acid water to sanitize and or break down grease and wax solvents to clean pesticides from fruits and vegetables, disinfect kitchen counters, utensils, and bathroom fixtures. Go to thisisthewater.com to ensure sparkling crystal clear windows and mirrors. Produce beauty water used for lovely skin and luxurious hair. The truth is that not all waters are created equal. At thisisthewater.com, discover the difference the right water can make. Hi there, Jordan Michaels here. Have you ever noticed in buying new towels that they can look beautiful, be soft and fluffy, but they're hardly absorbent? And isn't that the whole purpose of a towel? You know, I think we'd all agree we want a towel that looks good and feels great and works. Well, my pillow inventor, Mike Lindell, found the best towel company right here in America that gives everything you want in a good towel. It's made with good old US of A cotton. Right now, you can get such a great deal on these MyPillow towels. I have a set of my own, so I know firsthand how great they are. 
Six-piece set includes two baths, two hand towels, two washcloths for what was normally $109.99. And now get this. $39.99. When you get out of the shower and dry off, boy, this is a towel you're going to want to reach for. Go to MyPillow.com, click the new radio listener specials, enter the promo code KFAX or call 800-479-1790. MyPillow.com, use that promo code KFAX. The following is not an actor, but a real-life story from Trinity Debt Management. The credit card debt happened when my daughter was born. I was using one credit card account to roll over into another credit card account, and it was snowballing. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-936-5496. When I first called Trinity, the representative understood the need based on the situation. There are great people to work with. From the first phone call, Call that I made, they had me on a track to mitigate the credit card debt. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. Working with Trinity gave me the ability to save thousands of dollars. My name's Doug, and thanks to Trinity, I'm debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-936-5496. That's one 800 If you're worried about your cholesterol, hear how others are taking charge with garlic. My doctor said my cholesterol was borderline, but I've been taking garlic and it works. I've been taking garlic for years. My pharmacist recommended garlic. He said there's an ingredient in garlic that helps maintain healthy cholesterol. I take garlic every day. No garlic breath. Lots of people like you are choosing garlic to help maintain healthy cholesterol. Garlic, it's cholesterol's natural enemy. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Use as directed. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a lot of phraseology that is bantied about these days, uh, whether we're talking about uh, uh, discrimination or racism or phobias of one sort or another. Um, added to this list, one that's not, um, not talked about much, but quite frankly, um, the reverberation of its impact is being felt more and more, especially in countries that uh, heretofore have been locations where um, faith particularly of the Christian sort, had been celebrated. My guest tonight is a sociologist. In fact, he's professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's the author of a number of best-selling books and serves as founder of Reconciliation Consulting, helping churches and ministries develop and sustain a multiracial emphasis. His latest book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And uh, George Yancey, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me on. Doctor, let's talk first a bit about um, the phraseology here, the term that um, that you're using throughout the book, um, Christianophobia. Uh, help us understand exactly what that is. And, and, you know, as we think of phobias in general, there are anxiety disorders. Um, one definition tells us that they are uh, persistent fear, disproportionate to the actual danger posed. As you use the term, give us some definitions. Yeah, and, and I, my co-author of a previous book, really struggled with this. What do we call what we're seeing? What do we call what we're documenting? And, you know, I can't say that I'm completely satisfied with Christianophobia, but it's probably the best of bad choices. When we use phobias, 
the way we're using it in today's society, it's not just about fear. It's about anger. It's about bigotry, if you will, towards a certain group. That's Islamophobia, homophobia, so forth and so on. And what we've documented fits into that category. For example, many of the uh, people that we, uh, that we got information from that answered our questionnaire talked about Christians taking over and sending us theocracy and, and, and forcing everyone to become Christians, which we thought was nonsense, but these were well-educated people who had this sort of fear, an unfounded fear, an unfounded uh, anger. And so we settled on Christianophobia. Is it, is it perfect? No, but until I can find a better term, that's one I'll use. Okay. With that said, um, why not, um, I don't know, we, we hear of anti-Semitism. How about anti-Christian? Why specifically Christianophobia? I, I actually thought about anti-Christian uh, as, a, as a possibility, and, and it has some merit. One of the problems with using that term, I felt, was are you anti-Christian because of a fear, or do you just not believe in Christianity, and therefore, you know, uh, I don't... I don't agree with Christians. I'm, I'm anti-Christian philosophy or or, or theocracy or, or or theology or things of that nature. And so, it probably was my second choice, but I don't feel it's quite as good as Christianophobia. As we talk about it, let's um, perhaps get into some of the arenas where we're seeing this uh, begin to appear. I mean, to the degree to which it is. Um an attitude against people of faith, specifically Christians, that we've seen demonstrated in many parts of the world. We can certainly travel to many parts of the Middle East. We can travel to Islamic countries where not only is the Christianophobia uh, quite prevalent at many layers, it is um, not only accepted socially, but even institutionally, meaning it's endorsed by uh, governments, it's endorsed by the state church, in this case, Islam. But what about here in America? Um, We're beginning to see incidents of this, and while perhaps not reported on with any frequency on the 6 o'clock news, we're beginning to see increased incidences of this in academia, in politics, the government. Um, some of it seems to be kind of uh, casual and, and uh, covert, others more overt and, and even systematic. Why, why this trend, particularly in a country like the United States, who, whose very foundation was founded on the principles that ran contrary into this notion of, of again, the anti Christian bias or Christianophobia? Well, you know, at one point the United States was a society where, if not a Christian nation, uh, was dominated by a Christian culture. And to be against that culture was to put you on the outside. And so Christians had the dominant control in society, for good and for bad. Uh, I mean, sometimes Christians just used it, but they still had this control. What, what happened is that we're becoming a more multicultural society where Christianity is no longer the dominant religion, and where other groups now have gained a lot of power. And so, uh, whether this has happened, you know, it's happened somewhat slowly, but we see it accelerating at this point. Groups have gained power who never had power before, and the resentment that they had against Christians, they can now act out on them. Now, I would say that this is not the, obviously this is not the same thing as the Middle East. Uh, and these groups, uh, the people with Christianophobia, like to pride themselves on being religiously neutral, uh, on not being bigots themselves. And so they do something that has been noted in race literature, which I know now, which is they try to find an issue where they can justify it on non-bigoted 
ground, and yet it still has a negative impact on Christians. So this notion, doctor, that intolerance is uh, is never accepted, uh, but there are certain cases where um, the, the, the so-called tolerant are happy to be intolerant, provided it is only directed toward certain groups. Well, they like to say they're intolerant of the intolerant, which, you know, doesn't make sense if you really think it through. But, yeah, they, 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 there clearly is an intolerance. And in their... In their uh, social identity, they see themselves as well-educated, as tolerant. So it's, it's, it's very hard for, for to point out how intolerant they are because in their mind, they can't be intolerant because they are progressive, educated, whatever educated you want to use, uh, even though clearly we see that in Christianophobia. Are there those who are perhaps dismissive of the impact of Christianophobia uh, because it is different than many of the other types of phobias that are out there? And by that, I mean this, doctor. Racism, I mean, clearly, an individual, they're, they're born of what they're born of. There's their birthright. Uh, they're, it's their racial makeup. Don't get much of a choice in that. Um, some might argue that even homophobia, based on behavior. But, but Christianophobia is an attack or an assault on an individual, uh, a sense of, uh, of bias against that person based solely on what they believe, which kind of makes it unique in that case, doesn't it? Well, there's anti-Semitism and, and there's Islamophobia, which you could say is the same thing. So, uh, so I don't know if it's unique in that sense. It may be more unique in the United States because you have a group that's been a dominant group that now is becoming a minority group. And uh, people are finding ways to attack them now that they don't have the power they once had. We're going to take a time out on that point, come back to more of our conversation today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. His new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. A brief time out, back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Dr. George Yancey, professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. The new book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Why do we see this this growing sense of bias in the country today, doctor? Seemingly... What's the best way to phrase this? Um, inconsistently applied. And, and by that, I mean, uh, for example, if you have conversations with some people that demonstrate uh, a, a clear uh, Christianophobia, they may not necessarily take objection to, I don't know, say a mainline denominational Methodist who opens a soup kitchen, and yet uh, they will rear their, 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 uh, their hackles when you talk about an evangelical running for political office, for example. Why does it seem to be inappropriately or 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 in, in not not consistently applied well i think that those with christianophobia they have a certain set of values and actions that they deem acceptable and those that they deem unacceptable and as long as christians do that which is acceptable then they don't face any of these pressures it's when christians vary from that which they see as unacceptable uh, and of course, some of the, some of the values uh, I think most Christians would be comfortable with, but others, uh, especially more conservative Christians, uh, are not very comfortable with and are not willing to compromise their values. And that's where the conflict arises. So, you know, it's like like anything else. I mean, if you if you do what I agree, 
you know, should be right, then I don't have a problem with you. It, it, t- tolerance only comes into play when you start doing things I disagree with. And then, then we talk about tolerance. There's certainly a degree, I think, uh, in, in any, any culture, any society that has differing people groups coming together, whether you're of different uh, backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, different religions, there can be degrees at which we don't always mix together that well. We don't completely understand the way each other thinks or, or functions, and so therefore the things that we don't understand, we tend to kind of uh, uh, create this, uh, this bias towards. Uh, so to the degree to which in this so-called melting pot experiment of America, that there has been sort of this underlying uh, uh, pool of discrimination kind of lying low below the surface um, is is probably arguably there. That said, we've seen an increase, particularly in relationship to attitudes towards Christians in our country. Um, some might say to the point where it's becoming overt and systematic. Why do we see, is there anything to which in your studies points to the reasons why this rise in um, Christianophobia? You know, I would just say it's just a matter of you know, the, the sentiment has been there, but people didn't have the power to do anything about it, and now they have the power to do something about it. So, you know, perhaps in, in the past, people wanted to have some of these rules that would disproportionately hurt Christians, but if they tried to pass those sort of rules, they would have been slapped down. But now you can pass those sort of rules. Uh, and so, uh, the way I would see it is it's a matter of power, that certain groups now have power to harm Christians, and they don't like Christians for, for a variety of different reasons, and now so they are going to use that power. What about those that would argue that for there to be any demonstration of, of a true bias or discrimination, that you must show a loss of position or opportunity or, or favor tied directly to one's identity, and that some would argue, well, wait a minute, though. Most Christians in America uh, tend to live a privileged life. They really haven't suffered discrimination when it comes to opportunities and employment and education and things of this sort. So where's the discrimination? Where's the bias? Okay, you know, that's a very interesting question. And having been someone studying race and ethnicity, uh, a lot of times people would ask, you know, well, we talk about blacks. Uh, I don't see a lot of overt racism towards blacks today, so where, where's, where's the problem? And so part of it is, you know, uh, you're, we aren't going to see overt, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to do, do this, this, and what have you. I mean, it doesn't work that way in today's society because no one wants to be seen as biased. Having said all that, I did research several years ago when I uh, sent a questionnaire out to academics, and I asked them, if you knew that this person was belonging to this group, would you more or less likely to hire them? And the two groups that academics were less likely to hire, they found out the person belonged to was fundamentalists and evangelicals. Uh, with fundamentalists, about 45 to 50% of all academics that I surveyed said that they would be less likely to hire them. Even juggles a little bit less, about 40 to 35 percent. I don't have the precise numbers in my head. So there, now you have a situation where, while that, that, that even juggles may not know it, he or she may have lost a job because someone did not want to hire them because of their religious beliefs. I, 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 can, I have anecdotes, but that is systematic evidence of anti-Christian bias and what that anti-Christian bias can mean in our society. All right, toward that end, 
it begs the question, and this is going to make some people feel uncomfortable, but I think we need to ask this question, particularly since you delineate a stronger degree of anti-Christian bias or Christianophobia towards uh, conservatives or evangelicals. Is there a degree to which we have contributed uh, to some of this rise in bias? And I ask that question, uh, let's use an example that everybody's familiar with, Westboro Baptist Church, and I, and I hesitate to even refer to it as a church. We know from a traditional conservative evangelical Bible-based viewpoint that much of what they do is abhorrent. And yet, they pull on the moniker of, we do this in the name of Christ, we do this in the name of God, they claim to be uh, evangelical Christians, and so therefore, uh, there there is this label now that's associated. And I have to wonder, while this might be an extreme example, does any of the research, particularly as you talk to people that find a, an increase in their sense of negativity towards Christians, again, Christianophobia, that some of this, quite frankly, some of the culpability may fall on our own shoulders? Well, you know, I don't think you have to go as far as Westboro Baptist. Oh, even when we become Christians, we don't become perfect, and so we do sin, and we sin against other people. Uh, you know, having to say race, uh, there, there are sins Christians have done historically uh, concerning racism, uh, and we can look at other problems. So so Christians are not, are not innocent in that they've been perfect, and, and now people are coming in and attacking them. However, no group deserves all the prejudice that they that they tend to receive. And so, while, yes, Christians are not perfect, Christians have done some things where we've victimized some people, uh, the level of fear and hatred that I document in my research and that I talk about in, in this book does not match the, the problems that Christians have created. And so I talk about both in the book. I talk about how Christians have created some of their own problems. But that does not justify, for example, the discrimination that I just documented, I told you about, when it comes to academia. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a both-and approach. Yes, we need to get our act together as Christians. But we also deserve not to shut out the public square, which I think is the goal of people's Christianophobia, not to put Christians in jail, of course, but to uh, silence them so that they no longer have a voice in the public square. We understand that you know part of this is based on stereotypes, as you're suggesting, the, the notion that uh, Christians, evangelicals, are intolerant, bigoted, backward, hypocritical, self-righteous. I mean, on and on, the list of adjectives uh, goes, uh, goes. And yet I have to wonder, um, what can we, if we can't control their actions, what can we do to at least stem the tide or, or change some of the impressions that are out there that, as you point out, while perhaps the Westboro Baptist Church is on the extreme side of the continuum, but nevertheless, there there is a sense, I think, perhaps, that, uh, that to a degree to which we kind of are contributory to all of this. And we know from a purely biblical perspective, yes, we're going to be hated and despised for his namesake. That said, are there things that we can and should be doing, particularly in a pluralistic society like the United States, that would help to stem the tide of Christianophobia? Well, in my book, I go into more detail on this, but in a nutshell, here's kind of how I see it. We're not going to be the most powerful religious group for some point in time, for, for who knows how long. But we still have a right to have a voice in the public square. So I believe we have to fight for that voice in the public square. On the other hand, we're going to have to perhaps overcome some of our differences to sort of unite, to, sort, to, uh, to work together. Uh, 
so that we can protect each other. We're going to have to go into some of the cultural areas, uh, art, uh, entertainment, academia, where we've not been in order to influence in that way. I think it's a long-term project to accept the fact that we're not going to be the dominant group, but we have a voice and we can grow as a group if we are careful. Uh, you know, if we, if we can uh, penetrate some of the cultural institutions, if we can keep our own communities and keep our own values. It's going to be a long, hard project, but, you know, with the grace of God, it's doable. And as you mentioned, uh, we've just kind of... Um skim the surface of this very deep topic. You can go deeper inside the pages of this new book, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through uh, many of the uh, usual suspects and Amazon.com and George Yancey's website, simply George Yancey, Y-A-N-C-E-Y, GeorgeYancey.com. And Professor Yancey, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Hostile Environment, Understanding and responding to anti-Christian bias. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flint. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs>